read this morning from Second Chronicles, chapter 34, verses 14 through 33. This is God's word. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series, as Pastor Dan just said, where we are studying the life of King Josiah. And we've been learning from him what it means to have a heart for God. We've seen already, brief review, that a heart for God seeks God, that it wants him more than it wants anything else. We've also seen that a heart for God repents of wanting anything more than it wants God. We've seen that a heart for God desires a personal relationship, a personal connection, interaction with this God. What we're going to see today is that a heart for God listens to God. In this passage, I think there are at least three things that are worth our attention today. That as you come closer to God, first of all, there is a rediscovery of God's Word in your own life. Second, there's an increased sensitivity to what God says, and third, a recommitment to conforming your life to what God says. So, three things for today. When you seek God, you rediscover his word, you're more sensitive to what he says, and you shape your life according to what he says. So, let's get started. First, this is a hard chapter to read. Because each time you think that Josiah is making a difference, each time you think that the people of God have turned a corner, you get something else dropped on you, something that makes you pause and go, whoa, this is way worse than I thought it was. So at the beginning of the chapter, you learn initially that the country is just flooded with idolatry, that there are altars and images and alternative worship sites everywhere you look, that rivals to God, that this is happening in the land that God gave to his people. That was bad. But then you learn that the temple, the place of relationship where you would go to meet with this God who so really badly wanted to meet with you. You learn that the temple is so neglected, it sounds like it's about to fall down at any minute. That's worse. Now you discover that scripture is even more neglected than the temple was. It's not like you have this scroll that's all torn up and battered, falling apart. They didn't have anything at all. They had lost, verse 14, the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. And I think, okay, what exactly is this book they found? If you pull together all of the ways that this book is described, so verse 15, the book of the law, verse 19, the law itself, verse 21, the word of God, verse 30, the book of the covenant, and you look at what's in this book, verse 24, curses that are written in the book, and verse 31, commandments, testimonies, statutes, pull all of that together, and you realize that we're probably talking at least about the book of Deuteronomy, Maybe, maybe the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, which would include Deuteronomy. In other words, what is it that the Israelites have lost? They lost the document that gave them their identity in the first place. They lost God's covenant with them. They lost his pledge to them. They lost the document where he told them how much he had done to love them, where he told them what they needed to do in order to love him back. 
So they no longer had what told them about God and his character. They no longer had a sense of how they could live with this one who had been so good to them. They lost the record of the foundation of the relationship that God wanted to build with them. And apparently this had been true for some time because verse 19, when the king hears the words of the Lord, he tore his clothes, which tells you what? This is new information for him. This is not stuff that everybody knew. He's hearing things that are written directly to them, that are terribly relevant to them, that they'd forgotten. You're reading a tragedy here. It's tragic that they lost God's word. There's also irony here. The priest Hilkiah gives the book to the court secretary who brings it to Josiah and verse 18, read the book before the king. Now why is that ironic? Because in the middle of Deuteronomy, God gives specific instructions to the king, things that the king should do and should not do. In chapter 17, you learn that when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Put yourself in Josiah's position. Can you imagine hearing that read to you? That this is God's command for you. As his king over his people, you are to have your own copy of this book. Not rely on someone to randomly find it when they are fixing up the temple. You are to read it for yourself, not have someone read it to you. You're to have your own copy that you wrote out personally that you read to yourself every day so that you know what God says, so that you are absolutely convinced, so that you don't deviate from him. And the long-term fortunes of your reign by implication, the long-term fortunes of your nation depend on it. Only you haven't done any of that. Can you imagine what that would be like to hear that? This is a story of tragedy. It's a story of irony. This is a story that's completely predictable because this is the normal progression of syncretism. We talked briefly about last week about syncretism how scripture warns you from beginning to end not to mix other religions or philosophies in with God's word. We saw last week that that's really tempting to do. That there are things out there in the world, you can call them the idols of your world. There are things out there that people rely on, they depend on, they think that those things will give them the best life possible. Things like money, sex, power, good things in themselves that you raise to this new level and you make it an ultimate thing. You make this something that you now set your heart to have because you think you'll have a better life if you do. We saw last week that if you add things like that into your faith, that eventually those things become much more interesting to you than God himself is. He's less interesting to you because these other things capture more of your interest than he does and he ends up getting pushed to the side. That's what we saw last week. 
that if you take the things that the world worships, the things that it values, add them into the faith so that they're on the same level with God or maybe even at a higher level than God, then you can expect to have less and less interest in actually relating to God. This week you're learning something else. It's another litmus test that tells you where your heart is. That if you syncretize, you can expect to have less and less interest in God's word. That you'll have less interest in actually hearing from God until you might as well have just lost his word for all of the impact that it has on you. God's people, as they embraced the idols of the people around them, lost the word of God. No longer had his voice to, to guide them, convict them, reassure them. They knew what it was. They knew that this is called the Book of the Covenant. They had no idea where it was. And as Josiah's reaction tells you, they had no idea what was in it any longer. They weren't familiar with God's voice. It's a place where you and I need to pause and to ask ourselves, how important is God's word to me? Is it something that I think is essential for me to hear, to drink in, or is it optional? Something that might just as well be lost. Is it my priority? Or is it always third, maybe fourth on my to-do list? Something that always just sort of falls off that I never get to. Is it something that I think, you know, if I get enough of God's word on Sundays or if I go to CG, that, 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 that'll be good enough. We have a slightly different context than the people of Israel. We're surrounded with easy access to Scripture. It's probably on your phone right now. But how high a priority do we put on it? Is it essential to living life? Or have we lost it functionally, just like God's people did? And let me urge you to be careful here, because it's so easy not to see that as a loss. Just like Israel didn't think it was a big deal either. See, there's a way that you can think about Scripture that makes it sound like Scripture is this old, outdated book that's written in the past, it's locked in the past, that has very little to do with the modern world. I don't know how many of you are Star, Trek, uh, Star Wars fans, excuse me. For those of you who are, you may remember in Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, that there is this scene, it's toward the end, where Luke Skywalker and Yoda are outside of this massive tree where Luke has hidden the sacred Jedi texts. Now these texts are supposed to hold the wisdom of the Jedi, but over the years Luke has thought that what they taught did not lead to a good outcome, that it produced arrogance, complacency on the part of the Jedi. And so Luke threatens to burn the texts. He's not quite sure of himself. He hesitates, and then Yoda unexpectedly just lights the tree on fire. Luke is trying to process what does all this mean? Why would a Jedi master like Yoda destroy the sacred texts? And Yoda tells him, I'm not going to do the voice, Yoda tells him, for which you're all grateful. Time it is for you to look past a pile of old books, hmm? Page turners, they were not. Yes, 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 wisdom they held, but that library contained nothing that the girl Ray does not already possess. Spoiler alert, if you watch the end, you know that Ray already has the texts. But in that moment, Luke doesn't know that, and you, the audience, don't know that. And so what are you and Luke 
me hearing Yoda say, we hear that sacred texts are simply old books, just words on a page, dead letters making dead words, words written in the past. They have no ability, no power to impact the present. They're texts that are what? They're miserable to try to read, and they're better burned than preserved. And if you and I are not careful, that's how we'll think about the Book of the Covenant as well. It's how we'll think of Scripture for that matter. It's not really a big deal if we lose it, ignore it. It's not a page-turner. It has little to offer that people don't already have. And so it's no real loss if you don't have it any longer. Look at Josiah. Look at his reaction. Because he realizes that that is not what the Word of God is gives you a couple hints. Last half of verse 21. He says, Great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. What's he saying there? He's saying that what is written is the word of God, but that it's not a word that is locked in the past. It's not stuck in time in a previous age. Instead, the word of the Lord is present. It's the basis right now on which God judges. It's the basis on which he assesses his people when? Today. On whether they kept what he said or not. He thinks that his word is present tense. If you have the worldview of those early parts of the scripture, you realize that God's word's much more than that, though. That God operates in this physical world through his word. That it's what brought the world into being in the first place. You know Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, let the waters be gathered together, let dry land appear, let the land produce vegetation, let there be fish and birds and animals, humans. Scripture doesn't try to tell you what the process is behind any of that. It tells you the ultimate cause that's behind all the secondary causes. And that ultimate cause is God's voice. God decides to do something in the physical realm, and he sets that decision into motion by what he says. So each time he speaks, what he says actually happens. He creates and sustains the world by speaking which tells you that his words have ongoing power, that those words hang around, that they're not said once and then that's just sort of it, but that they continue to be present right now in the world around you. Because what he set in motion is still in motion. It's still here because of what he started. His voice is still here in this present mo moment. And it's that voice, the word of the Lord, that he causes to be written down in Scripture. It's not trapped on a page. It's what? It's available to his people so that we can hear him speaking to us right now. That's why you'll hear things like in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that tells you the word of God is what? It's living. It's active. Not this dead thing from the past. Not letters that at one point in time were helpful, but have lost their meaning or power. Or instead, it's what? It's him speaking to you, speaking to me right now, by his voice written in this book. So when you have lost this book, when you ignore this book, you lose his voice. 
When you lose his voice, you lose your ability to live with him. You don't know what he's doing, you don't know what he's thinking, and you don't know how to relate to him. And it's no good objecting, it's no good trying to appeal to Huldah the prophetess and say, well, you could go hear God from her or, or from someone like her. You can't say that because she refers back, verse 24, to what? To the curses that are written in the book. God's prophets only confronted God's people with God's word. You want to think about the prophets, think a little bit like a lawyer. They're bringing a case against God's people when God's people have stopped listening to him. And so the prophets are not adding to Scripture. They're not conflicting with what God said. They're reinforcing what he said. They reinforce what the people had ignored. When people ignore God's voice, that's the normal pattern of syncretism. You can trace it back to idolatry. But listen to this, because here again is God's grace in this passage. God also has a normal pattern. And that is to reward people who seek him. And his reward for seeking him is you recover your ability to hear him. Think about it this way. The book of the covenant would never have been found unless Josiah sought God. Unless he changed the direction that he was going at age 16 and started wanting the Lord. It would never have been found unless at age 20 he repented of the idolatry and the syncretism in the land. It would never have been found except at age 26 he longed to restore a personal relationship with God, that meeting place at the temple. One person's conversion, one revival of a heart that longed for God led to recovering what was lost. God is incredibly gracious. An entire nation conspired against him to marginalize his voice, to silence him. They didn't want to hear him anymore. And all of that rebellion is reversed because one person sets his heart to seek him. That one person's passion led to a restoration of God's voice to the nation that one person's passion led to you and me being able to hear his voice. You can now read the book of the covenant. It's in your copy of the scriptures because one person had a heart for God. Can you imagine the ripple effect that you would have on other people if you sought this God as well? Can you imagine the impact that you would have on the people around you as you're able to actually speak God's words to them. Young people, I know I keep talking to you throughout this series. I'm going to do it again. Don't blow off the impact that you could have if you would seek him, if you would know him. It's not about how old you are. It's not about how important you are. It's about the kind of heart that you have, whether you want this God or not. Seek him, and you'll discover that the normal reward of God for seeking him is that you get to hear his voice. Now, why is that? Because it's really all about a relationship. Josiah, we saw this last week, Josiah restored the temple so that people could enjoy meeting with God again. They could go there to talk to him, right? They could pray, they could sing. But that's not really enough to have a relationship with God. You also have to hear from him. 
And God wants people to hear him as much as he wants to hear from them. It's part of what it means to have a healthy relationship, that you are regularly communicating with each other. We all know that. If you date someone, you have great times of communication while you're dating, you have long hours of talking, in person, on the phone, text messages, email. If you have lots of communication while you're dating, but then very little once you get married, don't you feel cheated? Don't you feel like something's missing, like you got bait and switched? Why do you feel like that? Because you know that a relationship without two-way communication is not healthy. God's people decide they really weren't all that interested in what God had to say. It tells you something about their hearts. It tells you how little they invested in this relationship with him. Yes, they might have been going to the temple, doing religious things, doing sacrifices, offerings. But they were doing so without really being all that concerned about whether they heard from him or not. They had settled. Settled for a basic living arrangement. They weren't looking for a vital relationship. So they didn't miss what, hearing what he had to say. They lost the book. Here's the good news of the passage. When you seek God, he talks to you. He makes sure that you hear his voice because he is invested. And when you seek God, your heart changes. You want to hear his voice because what? Now you're invested. His voice becomes a priority in your life like it wasn't before. It's another litmus test that tells you that you really are seeking him. Let me be a little personal here, share a bit of my own story. It's very similar to a lot of other people's. I remember being a teenager, not understanding the Bible. I would go to Bible studies, and they just felt like this grueling mental exercise. They felt like people were talking about something that I had no real understanding of, I didn't get. It, it, it was really frustrating. And that's just what I kind of figured a relationship with God was. Mostly frustrating. It was kind of necessary, but confusing, really distant. Felt like you're trying to relate to a book, not to a person. Then I went to college. And at college, I met people who were excited about reading Scripture. Passionate might be the better word there. They couldn't get enough of it. And he started to realize, I started to realize, their experience was totally different from mine. I felt like I was reading a sacred text. Or if I'm really honest with you, I felt like it was just a text. Stale letters on a page didn't seem to have a lot to do with me. The people I met, it felt like they were having a conversation. Like they were talking to someone who was talking to them. Who was saying things that were meaningful to them about their own lives, about the world around them. And I wanted that was not sinful jealousy, but I wanted what they had. And if I look back on that time, I guess at this point, I would probably say I set my heart at that point to seek the Lord. I would not have used those words. I, would, I, would, I wouldn't have known what to call it. But I remember praying a lot for a number of months. God, I want that. And I remember that God answered that prayer very powerfully. What convinced me that my experience with God was real was that a number of months later I suddenly realized I'm in scripture. 
I'm in scripture like I've never been before. I now have this drive to be in scripture, this desire to hear from God. I'm understanding it like I never did. I'm not in scripture because I'm supposed to because that's what good Christians do, but because I want to. When you set your heart to seek the Lord, expect that one of the things that he'll do, just like he did with Josiah, is that he'll bring his word into your life in ways that it hasn't been before. That it will make more and more sense to you, more than it had. Seek God and you'll get him, and you can tell that you got him because he will make sure that you hear from him in ways that you hadn't. You'll rediscover him in his word. That's point one. Point two, you'll have this increased sensitivity to what God says. Verse 19, when the king heard the words of the Lord, he tore his clothes. It's a cultural expression. It, 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 it means that he was in severe grief and distress, tore his clothes. Why is that? God says, verse 27, that his heart was tender. His heart moved him to humble himself before God, to weep before him. Now remember everything we've been learning. Remember the context here. Josiah has instituted massive reform efforts, and they're going really well. But despite all that he's doing, despite all the things that he could point to in his favor, his laurels that he could rest on, he doesn't. He doesn't justify himself, doesn't remind himself, doesn't tell God how good he is, how hard he's trying, how so much of this isn't his fault. He was only a kid when he got to the throne, had no idea, Lord, how bad things are. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he's crushed. He's devastated by what he hears. He's receptive, not just to what God says, but to the way that God thinks. You get a glimpse of how his mind works. Verse 18, the book is read to him. Verse 19, he tears his clothes, wants to inquire of the Lord for those who are left in both Israel and Judah. Just hang on to those two words. We'll get back to them in a moment. He wants to inquire because he concludes, great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us. This is what's so upsetting to him. He has heard something in the book that he connects to what's happening to Israel and Judah. Now you read the rest of the book of Kings, like we are trying to do as a church, and you realize that there were a lot of hardships, extreme hardships that God's people had been going through. Josiah connects what he's hearing in this book with those hardships, and he says those hardships are not random. They're not just bad luck. But we are living right now through the Lord's wrath. We are experiencing God's judgment in our lives. Israel and Judah. If you remember, Israel refers to the northern kingdom of God's people. At this point in time, they've been deported, taken away from their homeland, away from their homes, their farms, their friends. They have been sent into exile. Extreme hardships devastated that whole nation. Judah is the southern kingdom, and they're also experiencing a lot of hardships. Military threats by the surrounding nations. They've lost their wealth to other nations. They are actively being oppressed by those nations. And as Josiah listens to the book being read to him, he realizes that they are experiencing all the kinds of things that God says will happen to his people if they reject him. See, if you read the book of Deuteronomy and you go to the end of it, God says that there are 
ways that he's going to respond to his people. He'll either bless them or curse them. God says that if his people will love him back, he will bless them. They will enjoy the goodness of a relationship with him. But if they don't love him back, he'll curse them. They'll still be his people. They're just not going to enjoy it as much. Josiah looks out at the people of God, looks at what's happening to them, and he says, it's obvious. Things are not going well. But these are the same kinds of things that God said would happen if we decided not to listen to him. Which means what? That means that the wrath of God is being poured out on us right now. Which means actually there's more to come because there's more yet in the book that we haven't experienced. And he rips his clothes. What's Josiah doing? He's thinking, isn't he? He's analyzing his world. And he's looking out at that world through the lens of Scripture. He's not looking for simple naturalistic explanations for the hardships. So he doesn't back up and assess the international stage. Doesn't analyze the politics of what's happening in Egypt and in Assyria and how that's kind of opening up a power vacuum for Babylon. Though that's true. He doesn't apply military analysis and say, well, those other nations, they're just stronger than we are. Which is also true. He says, above and beyond all of these secondary causes, God is running his world according to his word that we have ignored. And we are right now reaping the consequences of what we've done. Doesn't try to blame shift. Doesn't avoid the consequences. Doesn't try to justify himself by running God down. Doesn't tell God, you're being unfair. Your ways are unjust. You're just being petty. We didn't know. Lost the book. You should be merciful. Doesn't justify himself at God's expense. He doesn't pretend that his understanding of mercy and fairness are any better than God's. Instead, he says, this is what God said before. We didn't take him seriously. We were married to God. And we cheated on him. We had a love affair with other things. We worshipped other things. God is completely justified in what he's doing. And God says, Josiah's heart is tender. It agrees with God that breaking God's commands is breaking faith with him. It's breaking his covenant, and that's a really big deal. And I'm afraid this is hard for us to hear in some sense because of the world that we live in. Our world doesn't see things that way. If you've been reading the Dale Ralph Davis commentary that I recommended on 1 Kings, you've probably come across this story. Davis tells of a time that Charles Spurgeon was preaching. So that would be somewhere in the mid-1800s over in England. Spurgeon is preaching and he suddenly stopped and he pointed in a general direction. And he said, young man, those gloves you are wearing have not been paid for. You have stolen them from your employer. And after the service, young man came to him, very pale, very upset, begging to see Spurgeon. Put a pair of gloves down on the table and with tears confessed, it's the first time I've robbed my master. I will never do it again. You won't expose me, sir, will you? It, 
it would kill my mother if she heard that I had become a thief. That's a young man whose heart is tender to hearing God say, Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. The young man is tender to the heart horror of stealing. Yes, he gave in to the temptation, but he can't stand the thought of having done it. It crushes him, and he really can't stand the thought of his mother thinking that he's a thief. And I read that, and I think about our society, and I can't imagine someone reacting like that today. I can't imagine somebody being that broken up about stealing office supplies from their employer, or who would be crushed if someone called them a thief. Instead, we now live in a society that is okay with the idea of theft at certain levels. We're a society that regularly tells stores not to try to stop someone from shoplifting, that tells businesses that shoplifters will have to steal a certain amount before they'll be prosecuted. Our hearts are not tender to what God says in the Eighth Commandment nor to the other commandments as well. God says, honor your father and mother. And we expect disrespect to parents and to those in authority. We expect it. And we excuse it. Well, it's just a phase. Everybody goes through that. Our hearts are not tender in our world to God's command. Or God says, you shall not commit adultery involving any other kind of sexual sin as well. And we idolize in our country the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. We call it liberation. And we take what started then and run with it in ways that no one could have imagined 50 years ago. Our hearts are not tender toward the Lord and his word. We're hardened desensitized, and we have no idea how badly we are. Just look at what passes for entertainment. Think for a moment about how many of God's commandments are broken in each movie, each video game, each novel, each song. Think about how often multiple commands are broken in each one. Broken and what? Broken and celebrated broken and enjoyed, broken and consumed so that we want more of them. Think about that reaction and think about the opposite. Think about how little we grieve when we see or hear God's commands being broken. Think about how often, how never, we tear our clothes and weep during a movie. Because what God has said is being violated. That's when you realize that as a country, our hearts are not tender to God's word. We are incredibly hardened, and we think that's normal. That is, we think it's normal until we seek God and he talks to us in his word, and suddenly we find what? Well, we find that his voice no longer bounces off of us. It goes straight to our heart and convicts us. It grieves us now. Why? Because his voice matters to us. It's another way that you can tell how much of the world's idols you've absorbed. 
how much you've bought into or how much you've clung to the Lord. Look at how sensitive you are to what God says. This has been so convicting for me and has just fueled my prayers over these last several days because I think I'm okay with things I should not be okay with. Which brings us to point three very briefly. That when we are hearing from God, when we're sensitive to his voice, we will renew our commitment to shaping our lives on the basis of what we've heard him say. Disaster is certainly coming to Judah. That's what Huldah confirms for Josiah. There is no escaping it based on what's taken place in the past. And in response to this certainty, verse 29, Josiah gathers together everyone that he can. Elders, priests, Levites, those living in Jerusalem, all the people, both great and small. And he reads to them what he has just heard. Verse 30, he reads the book of the covenant. And if you think back to our study at the beginning of the fall, that's something you're supposed to do every seven years. Apparently that's not been happening. Josiah makes it happen right then. He reads the book of the covenant to them. And then verse 31, the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Disaster is coming, and Josiah obeys God anyway. He reads the covenant. He promises to abide by it personally. Verse 32, he makes everyone else promise to abide by it as the people of God. What's that tell you? We don't listen to God because he promises to give us a nice, pain-free life. We don't listen to escape judgment. It's still definitely coming. So why do we listen? It's because this is the God who made covenant with us. This is the God who's good. This is the God who sought us out, who rescued us when we could not rescue ourselves. This is the God who promised us a great future with him. His basic posture toward us is good. So if he allows, if he brings hardships into our lives, we still listen to him. We still obey because we know that everything that he does comes out of that motivation for our good. We listen to God because all of his ways are good, because he's good. <laughs> That's the only reason that we have a covenant in the first place. It's the only reason that we have a relationship with him. And so we're told that the people join in this covenant, this promise of faithfulness that Josiah makes. And the last sentence in verse 33 tells us that all of Josiah's days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. They join in and are faithful while Josiah is alive. That's good. The implication, however, is that their faithfulness only lasts as long as Josiah's life did. And that dynamic fits into a larger pattern. It fits into the history of God's people. You first learn back in the book of Judges that God's people need a king. Period of really bad moral confusion led to awful injustice. And several times in that book, the author makes this point that in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They needed a king. But what kind of king? 
Israel learned that they need a special kind. They wanted one so they could be just like all the other nations, and so God gave them Saul, who was a king like all the other nations had. He was completely absorbed with his own glory. God was kind to Israel. He took the kingdom away from Saul, and he gave them David instead. He gave it to David because David had a heart after God, very much like Josiah's. And David led Israel well until he died. His son Solomon started well and ended badly. He syncretized, compromised his faith, started the nation on a downward slide. And after Solomon came a mixture of kings. Some of them were bad. They led Israel in rebellion against God. Others were good. They led Israel back to God. But even the good kings weren't good enough. They weren't good long enough. They all died at some point. And so as you read the history of the kings, you start to feel something. There's something that starts to bubble up inside that says, we need a good king, and we need a good king who's going to last. A king who's always going to be around to lead us into being faithful to God and faithful to his covenant. And the more that you study the covenant, you realize that's exactly what we need. Because as good as the old covenant is, it had a fatal weakness. It told you how to have a love relationship with God. But it had no power to change your heart. So you actually wanted to love God. It's what makes Jesus so special. He meets both of those needs. He can change hearts, and he can guide you forever. Because when Jesus hears that God's judgment is about to be poured out on his people, he does not tear his clothes. He allows his body to be torn. And on the cross, his body then stands halfway between God's wrath and God's people. And on the cross, he absorbs all of the wrath of God for us against the curses, all of the curses for breaking the old covenant. It's what Jesus did not deserve. He had been faithful to God his entire life. He deserved the blessings of the covenant and he chose to trade with us. He absorbed all of the covenant curses from God against us that we deserved. He was sent away into exile, away from God, so that you and I would never be, so that we would now enjoy all of the covenant blessings of God. It's that reality that lets you stand before God and commit yourself to obeying him. There's nothing now that can separate you from God's love. There's nothing that you can do now that his spirit lives inside of you that can ever take away God's love from you. You are now what? You're free to love him. And as Hebrews 7 puts it, Jesus now has an indestructible life. And that means that he's the king who will always lead his people. He will always shepherd them so that they love God and so that they love listening to God. John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He is now the forever king, and he always will be. He's the forever king who will shepherd you by his voice so that you follow him wherever he goes. So if you are seeking him right now, what does that tell you? It means that he's already leading you. And if he's already leading you, he's going to keep leading you so that your heart becomes more and more tender to his words. And if you're not seeking him, 
because something else has been more interesting to you. His sacrifice means that you can make the same turn that Josiah did. You talk to him. You ask Jesus to be your shepherd king. You ask him to be your shepherd king so that you can know his voice, so that you can agree with his voice, so that you can long for more and more of it, so that you can follow him.